I'm going to scoot back slightly so I can see you. <laughs> so I was not here last Shabbat. Thank you again to Judy Schaffert, who I think is in the back over there, for um, filling in for me as rabbi. Um, I was spending four days in Washington, D.C. with five of our amazing confirmation students learning about how our Jewish identity informs our engagement as American citizens. And if you're wondering, am I tired after spending four straight days with five 15-year-olds, the answer is, yes, I am. I am. <laughs> On Monday, the teens had the chance to lobby their representatives in Congress about issues of importance to them. Anything from climate change to voting rights to LGBTQ equality, the Religious Action Center, which runs this program for thousands of teens across the country every winter, advised them to structure their speeches as follows. Number one, why is this important to our nation? Number two, why is this important to us as Reform Jews? And number three, why is this important to me? The kids were incredible and totally on board, except they all felt a little uncomfortable with the piece about why a legislative issue would be important to us as Jews. Why, one of them asked me, should I be telling my senator about what Judaism has to say about something? Isn't this a country with separation of church and state? How can Jewish values and American laws coexist? These teens are brilliant because they're asking the questions that are at the forefront of everyone's civic consciousness these days. What is the role of religion in public life? What is the role of law in faith? So it's particularly fitting that this week's portion begins, Now these are the laws which you shall set before them. After the dramatic narratives we've been receiving week after week, we now reach the legalistic minutia that follows the grandeur of Revelation at Sinai, only a chapter before. These laws, these mishpatim, seem to encompass all aspects of life in early Israelite society. They even regulate certain practices that have become obsolete in our day either because we no longer let our oxen roam free, goring people in the streets of Phoenix, or because the strictures like those around slavery or sentencing sorceresses to death, perhaps appropriate for their time, have since proven to be morally dubious at best. What are we, as Jews of the 21st century, to do then with a Torah portion made up almost exclusively of outdated laws. For me, the answer lies not in a rejection of this week's text, but in a commitment to return to its words with a new perspective. We're meant to read this text this week and every week, sort of like the way that bluegrass is played, right? They start with a theme, and then there's always a moment called the breakdown where everyone is riffing on their own moment. We get to riff on our texts. Reading Torah is like bluegrass. 
We get to read with the curiosity of my confirmation students. We examine through the lens of our contemporary lives and values. We try to understand how to make it all fit. I will admit here, and some of you know about this work I've done, that this was the endeavor I tried to do with my rabbinic thesis, which was a feminist Jewish theological inquiry into how to advocate for reproductive justice and reproductive choice. The work I did on that progress is on my mind, not just because this weekend was the second anniversary of finishing it, yay me, or because the current political climate in our country on reproductive decision-making is particularly fraught, but because the key biblical verse in the entire Jewish discussion on abortion appears right here in the portion of Mishpatim. Exodus 21, verses 22 to 23 read, And if two men fight together and hurt a pregnant woman so that she miscarries, and yet there is no ason, no tragedy, one shall surely be fined, according as the woman's husband shall lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is an ason, a tragedy, understood here to mean that the woman dies, then you shall give nefesh for nefesh, life for life. Now, I could go on at length about the way that these two simple verses will serve as the basis for a centuries-long halachic discourse on reproductive choice, and I did for 50,000 words. So I'm, I'm not going to get into it. I will spare you the details, though I encourage you to ask me about it any time. Really. But the driving question behind my thesis was the very same I offered in presenting this Torah portion. It's the very same our students offered in D.C. How do I, how do we, as modern Reformed Jews, translate the legalistic discourse of our tradition into a meaningful framework which reflects our moral convictions? And how do we, in a time when faith seems to speak with only one voice in public discourse, offer a different perspective, grounded in our religious values. And especially, how do we do this with a text whose laws often only reflect the voices of those in power, the slave owner and not the slave, the one stolen from and not the one whose poverty drives him to steal, the husband who loses his property and not the pregnant woman herself. In my research, I found that the most powerful way to create holistic moral frameworks and just regulations for our communities is through shifting our focus from the legal to the narrative. Robert Cover, in an article he produced for the Harvard Law Review in 1983, wrote that laws only have meaning in as much as they reflect communal narratives. When we bring the stories of our lives to bear on the texts of our tradition, we engage in Judaism with a fullness of self that enriches both the text and its reader. And when we speak to those in power in the world, our Jewishness is a key piece of our stories. We cannot offer our narratives as Americans without bringing our Judaism with us. Now, I spent a whole chapter of my thesis outlining the theological and philosophical precedents for such a move against way from legalistic discourse towards a more narrative-based ethics. 
Again, a lot of words, but it turns out that the Torah portion this week provides the blueprint for that transformation all along. Because you see, as much as I implied at the beginning that all the laws of this portion are outmoded, there are incredible passages here that transcend the limitations of their time. And those laws, the ones which protect the stranger and the impoverished, the ones which call on us to speak truth in the public sphere and to judge with equanimity, the ones that set fixed times for rest and communal celebration, appear only after a crucial shift in language. It's at Exodus 22:20 that this shift takes place. The text reads, you shall not wrong or oppress a stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or orphan. If you do mistreat them, I will hear their outcry as soon as they cry out to me. Two changes have occurred here, changes which transform the legal discourse of the portion from case-based concerns into a broader vision for the ethical necessities of a just society. Both of these changes are about the insertion of narrative. The first is that God here reminds the people of Israel that the reason behind these laws is bound up in their communal history. Remember your story, the Torah calls out to us. Let it fuel your empathy for the stories of others. Let it transform the way you treat them. Let it shape the way you build the very fabric of your society. This moment in Mishpatim is the first time that this phrase, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt, appears in the Torah. And it is certainly not the last. And then the second change. God's voice shifts from the third person, and God said, into the first person. If you mistreat them, I will hear their outcry. And God maintains that first person voice through the remainder of all the legal material in this portion. We have to tell our own stories, yes, but we are also being called to listen to God's personal story too. My story, God tells us throughout the Torah, is a story about redemption. It is about sacred partnership, about the redirection of anger and fear into love. My story, God says, is that I am the one who hears all people's narratives, who knows them, who is with them, until you manage to hear them as well. What might it look like to ask our sacred texts to reflect the fullness of all our stories? What might it look like to take the ensuing vision of a living, loving, vibrant Judaism and apply it to our lives and our society? How do we go forward, especially in this day and age, not accepting laws at face value, but ensuring that they reflect the voice of the other? For we, we know all too well what it is to have been other. My answer to my students and to you is found in Torah. Because though this portion begins, Ele Hamishpatim, these are the laws which you place before them. It closes with God's promise. Behold, 
I send an angel before you to protect you on your way. Within the angel is my name. Our narratives, the names and identities we carry, who my confirmation students are in all their fullness, in all their Jewishness, must inform the rules we set for ourselves as Jews and as Americans. I pray that we bring our stories to bear in our Judaism and in our country so that our world can be a true reflection of God's story and of God's name.